Hello and welcome to the Switch Your Money On podcast from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter and the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. And today we are exploring food prices and shopping trends from the rise of the discounters and budget ranges to the rise of spam. I kid you not. According to the Waitrose food and drink tracker, fish heads and spam sales are up by more than 30%. I don't think they are ingredients for the same meal though, you will be relieved to hear. That is a relief, although I'm not sure anything made with either of them sounds completely delicious. We're also going to cover trends in less unusual food and prices, including the rocketing price of milk, cheese and pasta, and look at what's behind the shocking price rises we've seen recently. And we're going to speak to Paul Cheema, who runs his family business, Malcolm's Stores in Coventry, and he's been coping with these trends at the sharp end. Paul is with us on the line now. Paul, tell us a little bit about your business. So we've got two stores in Coventry, one petrol station, and uh, one convenience store. So, look, we've been trading for 40 years, what well, my parents have in this area, and, you know, we're going through a tough time and some changes uh, with consumer shopping now. It's definitely a really challenging time for food sales, Paul, and we look forward to finding out all about it later in the podcast. We'll also be talking to Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst here at Huggies Lansdowne, about some of the listed companies and how they're coping. Hi, Sophie, you've got some pretty big names under the microscope this week, haven't you? Hi, Susanna. Yes, definitely. I'll be covering M&S, Sainsbury's and Premier Foods, the makers of some of our most loved branded food, including the delights of Mr Kipling Cakes. Plus, as always, we'll hear from the HL's Head of Investment Analysis and Research, Emma Wall, who'll be speaking to Chris Murphy, Equity Income Fund Manager at Aviva Investors, about food price rises, how they're impacting the big supermarket retailers, and how he analyses the pressure on these companies. And we'll have the quiz, of course, and I have high hopes for you in the food quiz, Sarah, because your highest scores so far have been when I asked you about chocolate. I know your quizzes though, so it's probably going to be all about spam and fish heads. And I'm not really an expert on that front. You'll have to wait and see. Because we need to start with some of the eye-watering rises in the price of food. And the fact that the rise in the price of food and non-alcoholic drink hit 14.5% in the 12 months to September. It means the annual rate of food inflation has accelerated every month for the past 14 months and according to the Office for National Statistics hasn't been this high since 1980. We saw some really painful rises in the price of some essentials including low-fat milk up 42.1% which is an enormous jump, margarine up 30.5% and cheese up 23.1% so that's up almost a quarter in a year. Yes, more recent Cantal figures show it rose again in October to 14.7% and it won there was still no sign of a peak. And in response, we're seeing a wave of people trading down from premium brands to supermarket-owned brands. The Cantal figures showed sales of branded goods were up less than 1% in October, while own brands soared over 10%. However, the really striking growth is in the budget brands, where sales were up 42%. We're also seeing the discounters flourishing, so Aldi sales are up around 23% in a year, and its market share is over 9%, while Lidl is up 22%, and its market share is over 7%, which is a new record for Lidl. Barclaycard also found that more than four in ten are opting for cheaper wonky vegetables and one in four are only buying items that are discounted or on offer. But of course, while average earners have room to manoeuvre and can ease the pressure by trading down, people on lower incomes are hit harder because they spend a larger proportion of their income 
on the essentials. And if they're already shopping the budget ranges, they're left with truly horrible choices about what they can live without in their weekly shop. Yes, and to make matters worse, the price of the cheapest ranges of food in the supermarkets is actually rising faster, with budget ranges up 17% in a year. The Office for National Statistics says that price rises for some staples are really horrible, with pasta up 60% and tea up 46% in a year. So where has all of this come from? Well, there's no one simple answer. There was a big spike in food prices on commodity exchanges after the invasion of Ukraine, as fears of a global food crisis intensified. Together, Russia and Ukraine made up around a third of global wheat exports, and many low- and middle-income countries, particularly in the Middle East and Africa, are super-reliant on imports of grain from the region, known as the breadbasket of Europe. And of course, the invasion came at a time when food stocks were already vulnerable after droughts and poor harvests, partly because climate change has made agriculture more unpredictable in many parts of the world. And commodity prices feed through into the prices on the shelves in a huge number of ways, rather than just the price of the raw ingredients. If, for example, you look at something like milk, the wheat price feeds into the cost because it forms a key part of animal feed. But farmers also have to deal with the cost of fertiliser, which requires ammonia, which itself requires gas, which of course rose dramatically in price after the invasion of Ukraine and subsequent sanctions. And then there's the cost of red diesel used in tractors, which also soared, plus the cost of the energy required in the milking process and the higher wages of farm workers. And all this... It's just before it leaves the farm. So then, of course, the milk needs to be processed, involving energy-intensive pasteurisation and the higher cost of running and staffing the bottling process. And, of course, at any stage where anything needs to be transported, diesel lorries and HGV drivers bring additional expense, and that's all before it enters the supermarket, which needs heating and lighting and staffing, all of which are more expensive. And, of course, that's just milk, which is produced close to home. When food is imported, there's the impact of the falling sterling too, making anything that's imported more expensive. But looking ahead, there may be some better news, because the big spike in food prices, which we saw on commodity exchanges after the war in Ukraine, has largely subsided. With Black Sea routes reopened, Opening under a UN initiative, despite a brief hiatus as Russia left, then rejoined the deal earlier this month, prices have calmed down. Global food prices measured by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's index declined for the sixth month in a row in September to pre-invasion levels. Plus, good harvests in big exporter nations like Australia, Argentina and Brazil were helping to rapidly bring down maize and wheat prices even before the Black Sea Initiative began, and falling gas prices, which affect fertiliser costs, have also helped. However, global markets are still relatively tight, and there are worries that if fresh export restrictions, similar to those India brought in or imposed by large nations, volatility could resume. And that could happen if weather patterns are disrupted and crop failures spark worries of short supplies. So there's still an awful lot of uncertainty hanging over food prices. So it seems like a good time to bring in our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lundjates, who can shine a light on some of the listed companies affected by food prices. And Sophie, should we start with Premier Foods? Yes, definitely a good one to get stuck into first, if you'll pardon that pun. Um, Premier Foods is the company that you didn't know you've already heard of, really. It's responsible for brands including Bisto, Oxo, Ambrosia, Lloyd Grossman, Cadbury Cakes and Mr Kipling. So cupboard staples like this are a lot easier to sell in times of low consumer confidence when compared to more discretionary items. They're also lower value and convenience offerings, so, so not the sort of thing that you might consider as a stretch in these tougher times. Um, 
the group has annual revenues of around £900 million and pre-tax profit of around £102 million. Um, I'd, I'd also say that it's worth noting that the group's balance sheet is in good health with net debt equivalent to 1.7 times the group's cash profits, um, which you'll see abbreviated as EBITDA in their results for those of you that want to go and do some digging. Um, by current estimates, the dividend does look very well supported, um, which means there's scope for growth in the future, in my opinion. And of course, no dividend is ever guaranteed. Um, Now, I think Premier Foods has a lot going for it. But as ever, there are some things to be mindful of. A big one is the surge of own brand offerings at supermarkets. So things like, you know, gravy granules, for example, there was a time when you wouldn't think about a supermarket copy, but that's not the case anymore. So the group's strong brands will mean that there is a cohort of loyal and returning customers, but I also think it likely that some sales are going to be lost during the cost of living crisis. The valuation, which looks at the share price in comparison to expected earnings growth, is also quite high on a long-term average basis. Now, that reflects the confidence the market has in Premier Foods over the long term, but it does increase the likelihood of ups and downs. So that's Premier Foods. What about Marks and Spencers? Signs of resilience? Yes, to some extent. And as much as I'd like to, I won't be digging into the clothing and home aspects of M&S today, but I'm going to focus on their food offering instead. So M&S food is a genuine asset, in my opinion. So while middle of the ground food retailers face a big challenge in the current climate, M&S's differentiated proposition makes it stand out. Um, A classic M&S customer isn't going to stop coming because of current inflationary pressures. The group's convenience offerings are a source of growth potential, in my opinion, too, because places like train stations are going to see more stable footfall than than city centres say. I also think it's important to talk about Ocado as well um, with the online platform which is half owned by M&S. So Ocado has seen or Ocado retail has seen sales disappoint because of cost pressures on its customers. Some of this could transfer to M&S's food offering but this is different to Ocado. Ocado is an all-in grocer whereas M&S is more about smaller shops and convenience rather than somewhere to do you know your full big shop. That does put it in a different bucket. Um, I would say that the next few months are going to be crucial. Christmas is typically boom time for M&S. The time of year people want to make things feel extra special and will splash out if they can. We did hear recently that M&S food sales in the last few weeks have been up about 3%, which is slower than the rate of growth earlier in the year, but not a bad showing in my opinion. And of course, we can't rule out that a higher proportion of customers than expected might trade down to a different supermarket. And if that were to happen, there would be a reaction from the market. Okay, Sophie, thanks for that. That's a snapshot on Marks and Spencer. Now let's turn to Sainsbury's because plenty of headwinds for the grocer, aren't there? Yes, there certainly are. So Sainsbury's management made it clear at the beginning of November that customers are tightening their purse strings. Shopping around for deals and choosing own label brands are definitely recurring themes. Um, To keep hold of customers, Sainsbury's is investing heavily to keep prices low and has managed to increase prices after its competitors, which helps it appear better value. Now, these tactics are working. Compared to key competitors like, like Tesco, Asda and Morrisons, Sainsbury's the only one to grow volume share since pre 
pandemic times. Now, offering value doesn't come cheap, though, and it's having a real impact on the profit line. Underlying operating profit fell 8% to £496 million in the first half of the financial year, thanks to a mixture of those low prices and higher than expected cost inflation. I am the the first to admit um, Sainsbury's is doing better than I expected and doing all it can in a very tough environment. Essentially, though, I think the next few months at least are going to be very tough and things may get worse before they get better. Okay, Sophie, thank you very much. I know we'll be keeping a close eye on all of those in the weeks and months to come. I should add that this is not advice for a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. Okay, so let's turn to somebody who's been living through runaway food prices. Paul Chima runs his family business, Malcolm Stalls, in Coventry. Paul, uh, really great to have you on the podcast today. Tell us a little bit about what it's been like over the past few uh, months and weeks as uh, the cost of living crisis has intensified. What kind of changes are you seeing in the behaviour of your customers? As the cost of running consumers' homes is increasing... There's a shift in behaviour now. So are we selling more own branded products? So are people trading down? Yes, they are. Um, we heard earlier that, you know, is Bisto relevant? Is Or is Co-op own label gravy more relevant now to the shopping basket? So I think, you know, the housewife for today is looking at how can she fill that basket with probably the same spenders before, but what else can go in that basket? So that's the change we're seeing. So there is more value shopping. But there is still treats that are going on. So people still want that treat at the weekend as well. You know, whether that was from spending outside in restaurants, now that they're doing that at home with scratch cooking or treating them, you know, to some wine and that at the weekend. So we've noticed a big change. But again, we have to now change our behaviour and what we do in the store to still try and maximise um, our store sales to keep our, our revenue up as well. So are you changing your promotions or where certain products are placed in your store? Yeah, so with the new regulations on the high fat, sugar and salt that came in, where we'd get the treats at the front of the store, we couldn't do that anymore. So we had to change that with uh, food items, so meal prep items at the front of the store, bringing that in as a value proposition, creating meal deal solutions in the store. So, you know, how can you maximise, you know, a couple of pizzas and four bottles of beer for a fiver or actually, you know, chicken, making that fajita kit on a deal. So we've had to look at different things. And the good thing where we are now, we work with another family uh, business, which is Best Way Retail. So they understand the values that go on in neighbourhood stores, whereas, you know, some of the corporates, you know, they, they miss that. So we're, we're having to look at every bay in the store. We're actually now looking, how do we remodel the store in January by cutting out some of the lines, but replacing with new value sections or actually you know, a bit of indulgence as well, because like I says, consumers still want that indulgence at the weekend. They still want to, you know, have that treat for the kids. So it's a lot of work that's going on at the moment. So is there a possibility that you could actually turn away from some of the best known brands to find um, items that you think your your customers will be more willing to fill up their baskets with because they're at a lower price point? I'll give you an example. Do we need to be stocking four different brands of tomato ketchup anymore? Probably not so we could get away with one branded and one own label. So consumer choice gets smaller in the store. That's what we're having to do. But we're having to go elsewhere now to look for them value products to fill them sections in the store. And when you talk about treats, are you seeing nostalgic brands or traditional brands becoming more popular? One of the ones that still sells really well for us is Ambrosia Rice Pudding. It's always been there. It's always a key, a key line. And it just keeps moving on. But 
you go into home baking, that's one of the things that came out of COVID. It taught people to cook, cook more at home. So more the the kids are getting into the home baking, it, it goes on with what goes on with TV as well. You know, so that plays back into the sales of, of local shops as well. And it's really interesting that you, you were saying that perhaps there is this uh, change in behaviour and that people are spending more time at home. This so-called inexperience, people spending time inside their homes, a bit like they did during the pandemic. Are you, are you seeing some of those kind of pandemic habits return? Yes and no. I mean, we we started home home delivery through pandemic. Didn't really work for us, so we, we just left it on the side of the business. We actually just focused on what's happening in the store. I think people are shopping a little enough now. We're about introducing new brands into our business next year. So, you know, first time we'll be offering some of the Iceland offering in a local store. Um, we've had to go down that route now because, you know, we feel that's what the consumer wants. So if we're reacting to consumer behaviour all the time. Are you facing supply issues, though? You may want to stock certain brands or uh, certain types of products, but are you worried about actually getting your hands on them? Yes, we are. And then, you know, just earlier in the year, probably about three months ago, we changed uh, our route to market. And I mentioned Best Way Retail because it's a family business and they understand the importance of the independence retailer and where they're actually trading. So my supply into stores now is better um, because my route to market now has three or four different options where we can purchase the stock from. So our availability is normally about 97, 98% all the time now, which is really good. Whereas before we were using one route and we had to go out and buy stock. It's actually, you know, you've got to look at your business and who can support your business. And what about energy costs? Because I know that lots of businesses are getting some support from the government for now. But are you concerned about your costs shooting up again in the future? Oh, for sure. So when we had the scary thought of where my energy was going from and we was paying like 14p uh, on my old contract and it suddenly jumped to 37, then we seen... The new prices that were nearly touching a pound before, you know, there was that little bit of support from the government for these few months. Now, as any business, we have to look at shopper spend and we we can't pass that, that cost on to the consumer, right? Because we're scared about losing customers. But is it impacting the business? Yes. Is it impacted profit? Yes. Has the family now had to step in and do more trading hours in the business? Yes. So it's, it's impacted us at a store level, right? But can we sustain that going forward? No, we can't. So we do have to then start looking at what we do in the new year. Like I said, we've had to change what we're doing so and probably cut out some of them products that we don't need anymore. Has waste gone up? Yes. We've got this app that runs up and we can do a, a mystery bag at the end of the night. We're seeing more of that happening in store now. That's helped us reduce our waste and what we're actually then putting in the bins, which is actually being taken to landfills, right? And what about a change in behaviour in terms of shoplifting? Have you seen an increase? Oh, look, don't get me started on that one. Look, this has been ongoing for a long, long time. It's not going to go away. Um, shoplifting, in my views, is always um, not in the correct mind of ministers, in the correct mind of the local police, because there's no support whether you're a little or small neighbourhood store or your M&S or Sainsbury's or whoever you might be. There's no support for the retail side. But that puts an impact also on your bottom line, right? So if someone comes in the store and says, look, physically haven't got no money for food, yes, we'd help them. But don't take product from my store and don't abuse my staff. That's the bit we did notice when there was a whole thing going on with the fuel crisis. There was a lot of abuse to um, sales teams. And that wasn't just at my, my store. That was, that, that's happening nationwide. We're only governed by the cost that comes into us. 
So we can only pass that cost on because we have to do that in fuel. But shoplifting has risen. Actually, through the pandemic, shoplifting actually, there was n nil and void. We didn't get hardly any. Um, we come out of the pandemic and shoplifting is probably at its highest again. So I suppose it's very difficult for you because on one hand, you do understand why some people might be uh, driven to that. But on the other hand, you, you need some support to stop it. Well, I think the whole of the retail sector, even the electrical superstores, we actually need more support from the government. And maybe, you know, the government need to publish the right messages, not publish this message that they had. If you take X amount of stock up to X amount of value, you won't be prosecuted. If the shoplifting continues, you'll see, you know, the, the low core stores that keep the high street going, they'll start disappearing. Because that's how big the problem is at the moment. OK, Paul, well, thank you so much for talking to us. It's clearly a really challenging time, but I can see you're, you're working really hard to, to try and keep your business going and the best of luck with it. No, thank you very much. Look, we've been here for 40 years and uh, we'll carry on doing uh, the greatest job for our community. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Let's bring in Emma Wall now, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at HL. She's been speaking to Chris Murphy, Equity Income Fund Manager at Aviva Investors, about food price rises and how they're impacting the big supermarkets. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very good, very good. In enjoying exciting markets. <laughs> Indeed, and that's what we're here to talk about today, and in particular, food prices, otherwise known as soft commodities, which have had quite significant macroeconomic tailwinds over the last six to 12 months. Maybe you could start us off with a recap on how food prices have rallied over the year. Yeah, I think we're in a pretty unprecedented period. The real drivers really comes from the, the shock of the Ukrainian invasion uh, what's Russia doing, what it's effectively doing to one of the breadbaskets of Europe, which is then also knocked onto energy costs, oil and gas, which continue to be exceptionally strong. And clearly that also feeds into, you know, the processing of foods. And it goes completely through all supply chains, doesn't matter what product you buy. If people buy a bar of chocolate, it isn't just all pure cocoa. There's lots of fillers, lots of other products to give it extra tastes and textures. And that has exposure to all the commodity prices that people can see in the press that are going up on a daily basis. And prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, we'd also had impact from coronavirus, hadn't we? Which really impacted supply and demand and indeed supply chains. It's been a strange few years for that supply-demand balance, hasn't it? You know, it's not just in the food industry and soft commodities. It is everywhere. There have been big dislocations. And just as we thought we were getting through it uh, from the pandemics, we've obviously had then the oil price shocks. I think some of the dislocations that we've had aren't going to go away. If you're picking crops, that needs people. If you're picking apples in the UK, if you don't have the labour, you either don't have enough produce which is obviously inflationary, or you have to pay more for that labour. Of course, you can invest in the sort of the raw commodities themselves, in futures of bushels and wheat, and even some fruit and veg and, and hogs. But 
as you said with your example of the chocolate bar, it's not just the sort of underlying commodities that have had the effect. It actually goes all the way through the supply chain, right up to things like supermarkets, which I know you invest in. So how do you begin to analyse those kind of food retailers when you have all this huge background noise and this macroeconomic uncertainty? There's an element of judgment and experience that comes into it. There's meeting the companies face-to-face to discuss what they see and how they will cope with it. If you look at Tesco, it's got big cost headwinds through this year of five, 600 million from labour and energy costs. Tesco is something like 1% of UK energy demand. The cost side isn't so bad. You can sort of have the numbers and play with them in spreadsheets. The hardest bit to actually analyse is how the consumer will react. If you're buying luxury Christmas puddings, for example, will you trade down? Will you change the size and the shape of your shopping basket, i.e. how much you buy and what you put in? And so the way we try and get around that is then looking at market position, the product offering. And one of the things I would say about Tesco is they've been quite vocal, which has been smart, in saying they're here to help the consumer during the cost crisis, which I think has gone down well. Over recent years, they've also worked very strongly on their price architecture, which is basically their range, particularly versus the discounter. And they're considerably more competitive than they were during the financial crisis, for example. So if people do want to trade down, Tesco are in a much better position than they have been for multiple years. All of us, when faced with higher prices, do look for ways to save money. And the discounters, like the Aldis and the Lidls, have been quite a threat to not just Tesco, but also Sainsbury's, Morrison's, which there's conversation about potential takeover there. So how much are those discounters really challenging those you know, UK food retail stalwarts? The Aldis and the Lidls, you know, they have been a huge disruptor. It doesn't feel like that long ago they had zero market share and now whatever, we're around 15% of the UK market. But in terms of how much share they've been gaining, you know, the rate of growth has slowed down dramatically from when they first started. Their pricing and their scale does mean it's harder for them to continue to cut costs. If we look at the moment, the industry data seems to point to that the Aldis and Lidl's of this world are actually passing on more costs to the consumer through the, you know, the soft commodity inflation than the likes of Tesco are, which aids Tesco's position competitively. Versus the rest of the industry, I think there are issues. Sainsbury's is a lot more levered than Tesco um, and obviously they have a a debt finance cost so I think their flexibility isn't as great. In terms of Morrison's that you mentioned, you know, they they now have gone through a deal, private equity owned, that have taken on a lot of debt. They're trying to change a business, sell off stores at a very difficult time so you, you sort of wonder if they've got the eye on the ball of being a food retailer and food retailing in the UK is very competitive you know, strong Christmas campaigns, good promotions, getting price point rights are really very important. Chris, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Well, that was Emma Wall, Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at HL, speaking to Chris Murphy at Aviva Investors. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. 
You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. So now it's time for the quiz and I promise spam won't come up, although I can't guarantee to avoid detailed questions on fish heads. But let's start with something a bit tastier. Christmas puddings. According to Kantar, in October last year, two million people had already bought their Christmas pudding. But how does that compare with this year? Are we even keener with the number of puddings up to around three million? Are we holding steady at around two million or have they fallen below one and a half million? Oh, that's really tricky because people will want to spread the cost of Christmas. But then again, they might not have the extra cash to start Christmas shopping at the moment. So I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to say they're roughly the same at two million. I am sorry. The early Christmas pudding shoppers have dropped by around a third to under one and a half million. That is still a lot of festive puddings, but it does raise the question of how we're going to squeeze our Christmas shopping out of fewer pay packets this year. Okay, sticking with shopping habits. Research from Barclaycard looked into some of the things we're doing to cut costs. It also asked people whether they were making efforts to grow their own veg. So how many people said they were having a go in the garden? Was it 1 in 8, 1 in 10 or 1 in 12? Well, I have to admit, I did try this during the pandemic and spent a small fortune on tomato plants that only ever ended up feeding the snails. So I definitely won't be trying that again. But given how much I hate gardening, I suppose if I tried it, then everyone else probably did as well. So I'll go with the highest number, which is, I think, one in eight. Yes, you're right. I have to say it's a trend I've tried but have repeatedly failed at. Anyway, let's move on to cooking trends now. I'm a bit better at that. And those fish heads. No, not really, though. There are some really great fish head curry recipes. Did you know? And fish soup. So don't knock it till you tried it. I'm particularly keen on a French fish soup recipe. But this is about TikTok. So how many 18 to 24 year olds have found foodie inspiration on TikTok this year? Is it 71%, 51% or 31%? Well, if my kids are anything to go by, they learn everything on TikTok. So I'll go with 71%. No, it's 51%. Just a tad over half. But you can get a bonus point if you can tell me how many followers Gordon Ramsay has on TikTok. Is it 3.1 million, 15.2 million or 34.8 million? Oh, well, I know all figures on TikTok are crazy. So I'm going to go with 34.8 million. You are right. People just can't get enough of him commenting on other people's questionable recipes. Okay, finally. Given how difficult life is at the moment, it looks like we're sneaking some indulgent treats into the supermarket trolley to help us comfort eat through the pain. But roughly, how many of us are regularly treating ourselves to a nice bar of chocolate or a pudding? Is it about a quarter, about a third or about a half? I think we need all the comfort food we can get at the moment. If that's a steamed pudding or a Viennetta, then why not? So I'll go for half. Well, yes, you're on a roll. Apparently, 46% of us are opting for sweet treats, maybe to ease the pain of the supermarket bill. Actually, we have a Viennetta in the freezer, so that's my lunch sorted. I think in this weather, I'd rather go for the steamed pudding. That is all from us this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 14th of November 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. Past performance isn't a guide to the future. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. 
However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left for me is to thank our guests, Paul, Chris, Sophie, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.